0: I've entitled the message here, as you see, as we're entering into Ephesians chapter 4, as a worthy walk, a worthy walk, a life that you are called to. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Father, we bow our heads before you this morning as we look at this one singular verse. I pray that it would change our hearts forever. I pray that as we consider the weightiness of our calling, that you would allow us by your grace to have a conduct which matches it. Bless this service, change lives, encourage hearts. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the 2003 California recall was a special election permitted under California law. It resulted in voters replacing the Democratic governor, Gray Davis, with Republican Governor, I mean, Arnold Schwarzenegger. The recall effort spanned the summer and the fall of 2003. Many of you probably remember it. And after several legal and procedural efforts failed to stop it, California uh, had its first ever recall election, which was held on October the 7th. And the results were certified on November the 14th, making Davis the first governor recalled in the history of the state of California. Backers of the recall um, effort cited that Gray Davis's alleged lack of leadership combined with California's weakened economy uh, was the reason for this petition, which was circulated, which read things like this. Governor Davis's actions were a gross mismanagement of California finances by overspending taxpayers' money threatening public safety by cutting funds to local governments, failing to account for the exuberant cost of energy, and failing in general to deal with the state's major problems until they get to the crisis stage. Gray Davis was accused of being a governor whose conduct in office didn't match the claims which got him elected and put him there. Simply this, he said he would do one thing, and according to the action, he did another. Now, of course, I'm not faulting Gray Davis as if he singularly was the worst uh, governor in history. I could probably think of a few others. All politicians almost fit in that category. But we're grateful for those who God places over us, right? But the idea is this. Simply people got him out of office because they said what he said he was going to do and what he did was two different things. He was accused of not living up to his calling as a governor. Well, what about you this morning? Does your conduct match your calling? Are you in your day-to-day life who you claim to be in Christ? Do you live out in your life what you say you believe in your heart? Well, this morning I want to talk to you about walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you've been called out of the kingdom of darkness And you've been called to walk in the kingdom of light. You've been called to be an object of his mercy and a trophy of his grace. You've been called to be an ambassador of the Lord Jesus Christ. You have been called to a life of suffering and a life of service for the Savior. And this same life that can sometimes be difficult is the only life which can bring you true joy and happiness. Sometimes we think the calling is just going to be a tough uphill battle, and in some ways it is, but in many other ways this joy of walking with Christ brings us true satisfaction and brings you the only contentment that you could ever find. Life in Jesus brings a joy greater than infinite riches. It brings a joy greater than a perfect marriage. It brings a joy greater than a healthy family. It brings a joy greater than obedient children the joy that we have that comes from Christ comes from knowing God. And the joy of forgiveness is to be coupled with the joy of a forever faithful walk. In fact, Christ calls us to walk just like he did in First John 2, 6. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same manner in which he walked. And though you will... Never lose your position as a blood-bought child of the king. You can lose your joy as a faithful Christian by losing sight of the cross, which would lead you to an unworthy walk. You don't have to commit some grave sin in the world, like murder, adultery, embezzling funds, or cheering for the giants, if you're a Dodgers fan. You could just simply have a bad attitude. You could be a complainer. You could have discontentment. You could commit any of a number of sins, and it would wreck your walk in the way that God wants you to walk in accordance with the calling to which you've called you. You could be a pretty smart student this morning of the Bible, and you understand important biblical theologies like the hypostatic union, like corporate solidarity, like the Ortis salutis, like superlapsarianism. But if you don't understand what your walk is to be, it means nothing to God. God desires you to know good theology so that you can live good theology. And if we're not careful, we could wreck our walk, and it starts with just having, again, a bad attitude. And so I would suggest to you this morning that the first step in having any disunity in a local church has to do with your walk, getting off kilter. It has to do with the way that you think and the way that you feel and the way that you act. Begin to head down a slippery slope of worldliness instead of interpreting all that comes to you through the grid of Scripture. God calls us this morning to walk in a manner worthy... Of the calling to which he's called us, and in fact, our passage this morning—we're just looking at this one verse—is in the greater context of verses 1 through 16, which in Ephesians 4 is all about unity. It's all about the fact that we're to be one in Christ, and we're to experience this incredible type of of oneness. Look at verse 4: There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all, who was over all and through all and in all. And so we're going to be seeing as we dive in here to chapter four, that God has called us to have a walk that is truly worthy of the calling to which he's called us. And just in this section on walking in unity, verses one through 16, we're going to look this morning at a life that you were called to. Next week, we'll look at a life that has a specific description. Then we'll look at a life that finds its unity in God. Then a life that has been graced with Christ's gift. Then a life that is uniquely gifted to equip others. And then we'll look at a life that helps others mature in Christ. And then a life that speaks the truth in love. We have a lot to look forward to as we now dive into the second half of Ephesians. And so this morning, again, just verse 1, a worthy walk, a life that you are called to. Let me give you this morning five observations just from verse 1. Here's our first observation. Number one in your outline, if you're taking notes, is we're going to talk about going, moving from orthodoxy to orthopraxy, from orthodoxy to orthopraxy. Now, let me define these terms for you, as they may be unfamiliar to some of us. Certainly, you've heard the word orthodox before, the orthodox church, or is that an orthodox doctrine of the church? Orthodoxy comes from two words, orthos and doxa. Orthos means right, or true, or straight, like an orthopedic surgeon sets the bone straight. It has that idea of it's got to be right, it's got to be straight, Whereas the word doxa is the word that could be translated as opinion or belief. It is related to the idea to think. Many times it's thought of as the idea of doctrine. And so what we have here again with this word orthodox or orthodoxy, it means to have right beliefs about God and the world. It means to have right and true and straight doctrine. So orthodoxy means to have the right beliefs. So what does orthopraxy mean? Well, the word orthos, again, right, true, or straight. The word praxy comes from praxia, which is the word correct action or activity. Correct action or activity. And so the idea is if you have the right doctrine, you ought to have the right behavior. If you have the right beliefs, you ought to have the right conduct. And so the idea here is that we're moving in Ephesians from studying the right doctrine, and now we're getting into the second half of the, chap- of, the, of the book, where we're going to be looking at having the right duty. Now, just this week, I read an article about this orthodoxy and orthopraxy, where the author of the article added a third ortho, which I've never heard before, and thought it was vital to understanding God's intention for us as we move from orthodoxy to orthopraxy, and it's the word orthopathy. Orthopathy. And it's the idea of ortho again, right or straight. Pathy is the idea of affection, of feeling, or of attitude. And so the idea is the only way that you can move from the right doctrine to the right practice is also to have the right attitude. For God is not looking for simply external obedience where in your heart you're not doing it as unto the glory of God. And so if we're going to move properly from orthodoxy to orthopraxy, we need orthopathy. God, give me a worshipful heart. God, help me to do it because it's what I want to do. Because you are my greatest affection. And the word, therefore, is used strategically here to help us understand the word, therefore. I'm moving now from the concept of orthodoxy and orthopraxy to looking at the biblical word here. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord. And this word, therefore, is used strategically as we're transitioning from what was said before to what is following after. So we see this conjunction draws an inference from what preceded it, and it connects us to the information to the results that should be following it. And what we see uh, here in the word therefore is the same kind of style that Paul uses in a number of epistles where he front loads the letter with lots of doctrine, and then he backfills the letter, if you will, with a lot of duty. Take Colossians, for example. The first two chapters is the book of Colossians. is all about the supremacy of Christ. He talks about who Christ is, and then in Colossians three one, he says, if then or if therefore you have been raised with Christ seek things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And so the second half of Colossians just like Ephesians moves from knowing what we know about God to living how God's called us to live for God. Same thing in Romans chapter 1 chapters 1 through 11 is all about good Theology, good teaching of justification, sanctification, glorification, a future for Israel, all kind of doctrine in 1 through 11, verse 12, or chapter 12, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And so we could talk about how our orthopraxy and our orthopathy is our form of our worship to God. We're moving from having the right doctrine to having the right practice. And what are some of the right doctrine that we've already studied in chapters 1 through 3? Well, we talked about giving God praise for His spiritual blessings. In 1 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And so this is where we started in the book of Ephesians, how God has blessed us with salvation. The fact that you've been selected by the Father. The fact that you've been saved by the Son. The fact that you're being sanctified by the Spirit. At the end of chapter 1, we looked at Paul's first prayer, where he prayed for wisdom and revelation. And then we headed right into chapter 2, and we talked about how that you have a new position in Christ individually. That though you were dead in your trespasses and your sins, God made you alive together with Christ. And not only does it happen to you in an individual way, but then we looked at verses 11 through 22 that talked about not only do you have a new position in Christ individually, but you have a new position in the church corporately that that gospel transformation of your life individually affects the way that you interact in fellowship with our brothers and sisters in Christ and then we looked at chapter three where Paul begins to pray for the Ephesian believers but before he can get into his prayer he gives us a couple of more insights into the mystery of the gospel the fact that two Would become one. The fact that Christ would live in us, and then how we're to be good stewards or ministers of the gospel of grace. And then we ended chapter 3 again with this prayer to be empowered to live for Christ. So, with all that being the orthodoxy, then the therefore in verse 1 of chapter 4 moves us into the orthopraxy. And this orthopraxy is going to be accomplished through a worthy walk. The practical aspects of application are heightened in the second half of Ephesians by a repeated emphasis on the believer's walk. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Skip down to verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. 5-2. And walk... In love, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. 5.8. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. 5.15. Look carefully then how you walk not as unwise, but as wise. And we notice that Paul used the word walk 32 times in the New Testament. And each time he uses the word walk here in Ephesians, it is used in a metaphorical sense. In other words, he's not talking about you literally walking around, like walking around the room or walking in a walkathon. thon He's talking about your Christian life, Your lifestyle, how you live, your conduct. And so he's using the word walk to really apply to how your everyday life is going. And that's how we interact with each other. Sometimes as Christians, don't we ever been asked by another Christian brother or sister who said, hey, how's your walk going? How's your walk with Christ going? How are you doing this week in your walk? Well, my walk this week has been up, or my walk's been challenged, but I know God is faithful. We're talking here about the word walk equaling the conduct of your life. And the word walk in the Bible can be used positively, but it can also be used negatively. We see it used negatively twice here in Ephesians 2.2. He talks about how you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Again, in 4.17, used negatively. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. In other epistles, walk can be used negatively in 1 Corinthians 3.3. For you are still of the flesh, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not still of the flesh and behaving, or that word is walking, only in a human way? Colossians 3, 7, in these you too once walked when you were living in them. 2 Thessalonians 3:11. for we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Well, the word can also be used positively in Ephesians 4, 1. We've seen that already. We saw it also in Ephesians 5, 2, to walk in love. In Romans chapter 6, verse 4, we see the walk used positively, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, by the glory of God the Father, you too, we too, may walk in newness of life. And so that verse is just talking about, and because of the gospel, because of what Christ has done for you through the death and the resurrection of Christ, now you're enabled to walk with him, to walk in a new life. Galatians 5:16, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And so let me ask you this morning, are you walking by the Spirit, or are you walking by the flesh? Let me ask you this morning, Placerita, how is your walk going? How is your conduct going with Christ? If you love orthodoxy, then you should also have a love for orthopraxy. And I'm afraid that in most churches, including our own, about half of us, seem to cater towards really enjoying studying the finer and deeper points of theology. And if we're not careful, the emphasis on the biblical counseling stuff, or the devotional stuff, or the daily walk stuff, almost seems subpar to the richness of, the, of theology. Whereas the other half of us is like, oh man... I need to have my walk worked on, and I'm a little bit more about having, having this, my relationships worked on and examining my heart, and I'm all about my walk, but that tough theology is hard to conquer. Well, look, in the book of Ephesians, it's perfectly balanced. Rich theology, rich practicality richness and the teaching of the goodness and the greatness of God and a richness and how that plays out as we'll see in these last three chapters in your marriage and in your parenting and as fighting a spiritual warfare it's very practical all theology is practical you can't focus on one without the other and so God expects us this morning that if you know the truth then that you would be walking in the truth and do you know what God expects of you Husband in your marriage. He expects you to love your wife like Christ loved the church. Are you doing that? If I were to come to your wife after the service and say, Hey, I'm just curious, just want to check in, is your husband loving you like Christ loved the church? What would you say? Or what if I came up to you, ma'am, and I asked you, Do you respect your husband and do you submit to him as unto the Lord? I know that you know that from Scripture. Are you doing that? Have you been doing that week with a heart of great grace and gratitude? When's the last time you looked at your husband and said, honey, I love to submit to you? Maybe it's been a while. How are you doing, teenager, about obeying your mom and dad? How are you doing when basically the Bible says that you're to obey your parents and it's understood there in everything except son, the only exception would be if your parents directly ask you to sin, they can set up whatever guidelines they want. It's their prerogative, and it's their responsibility to pretty much at this time in your life to be those training wheels to say, you can do this, but you can't do that. And if that's what mom and dad say, how are you doing in your walk? This is the question that we're asking ourselves, because we've got to move from orthodoxy to orthopraxy. And by the grace of God, may he fill us with an orthopathy, a desire to do so. Well, the second observation I want to show you this morning is this, number two, from exaltation of Christ, from the exaltation of Christ to the exhortation to follow Christ. And we see here again in 4.1, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. This word urge could be translated as I beseech you or I exhort you, I implore you. And there's some uh, different information about this word, how it could be used in the form of comforting somebody. It's used that way a few times in the New Testament. It could be used to appeal to somebody. In fact, Paul uses it this way in 2 Corinthians 12, 8. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that he should, uh, that it would leave me, talking about the thorn in the flesh. So it could be seen in the context of comfort or pleading or entreating but in this context, it's used in the way that we see it translated and urging. There is, there is this idea of he's beseeching. It's the strongest use possible that he's, he's, he's emphasizing this is something we just got to do. And he's begging with us and he's exhorting us that in light of all the truth that he's given us, that it ought to impact our lives and ought to change the way that we live. And everything about us ought to be different because of the great truths that have been shared with us in these first three chapters. Also here in chapter four, verse one, we see the word, I therefore a prisoner of the, of the Lord. You have to understand that in the original, the the original first word is not the word I or therefore, or a prisoner of the Lord. It's the word urge. It's the word I, I exhort you. The, 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 that's the first word of the sentence, which any Greek student knows that's a place of emphasis. And so the idea is the first place of emphasis is exhortation or urging you. And then he also does include the personal pronoun I, which Paul rarely does, unless again, he's utilizing it for emphasis. That this is something he really wants us to understand. This is the hinge. This is the turn of this entire epistle. And so we're talking about this this man, Paul, by using the personal pronoun I, reminds us of who he is It reminds us of his own testimony. We're talking about a well-known, well-educated, well-documented case of a radical conversion. And he can't help but preach the gospel. When you think Paul, you think to live as Christ and to die is gain. When you think Paul, he says, woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. And so you can kind of sense here there's this great emphasis in I... Therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you, I implore you, I beg you to look to Christ, to follow Christ, to exalt Christ. And so we've already covered all these places of exaltation in Ephesians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ, that we have every spiritual blessing. Ephesians 1.17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ Ephesians 2, 5, and 6, that when even when we were dead in our trespasses, we were made alive together with Christ, raised up with him, seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And so that leads us from the exaltation of Christ that he's articulated to the exhortation to follow Christ. And that's why he's saying, look, I'm urging you. You got to do this by the grace that was given to each one of you to the measure of Christ's gift. In 4.7 and 4.11 through 13, he talks about he's given us spiritual gifts to equip the body for the work of the ministry, to build up the body of Christ until we are all mature in our manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We got to speak the truth in love uh, uh, to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. And we have to walk in love as Christ loved us in 5.2. We've got to understand that he's exhorting us, follow Christ. Well, it seems like to me that few preachers preach this way today. First of all, few preachers unpack deep doctrinal truths like we've seen in the first half of Ephesians. Most preachers get up and tell a lot of funny stories and a lot of personal application or illustrations, and they talk, 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 and then it's almost like they suggest if you have time to think about it, why don't you try God this week? Well, Paul here doesn't take that approach at all. He gives firm, solid, meaty doctrine throughout the first half, and then he gets in your face. And he doesn't tiptoe around the issues. And that's politically incorrect, which is why the way of preaching, anybody who, who, who has that kind of demeanor today is called like an old Baptist preacher preaching hellfire and brimstone. But you got to understand that Paul is preaching the truth and he's begging, he's imploring that people would change in light of the gospel to follow and become like Christ. It seems like to me today, few preachers are like this because of our culture and because of our change and because of what's appropriate and because of what we've been told of this is how you learn and this is how you influence people. It's not by getting in their face, but just kind of winning them over with love to which I would respond. It's both. Of course, you win them over with love. Of course, you paint the picture of the gospel. Of course, you plead with them to come and taste and see that the Lord is good. But there's also the imperative, which is given consistently. I love how Al Mohler gives his insightful summary of today's preaching. He says this, quote, The one thing missing is the one thing most essential. There are question marks where there should be exclamation points. There is hesitancy where there should be boldness. There is advice where there should be teaching. There are ideas where there should be doctrine. There are impressions where there should be imperatives. And speaking of imperatives, let's just move right into the third observation, which includes the idea of this, from the indicative to the imperative. From the indicative to the imperative imperative. Now, I understand that you, you need to understand. I know you know what an imperative is, but take just a moment and make sure you understand the indicative. The indicative is a tense or a mood of the verb whereby it is simply stating something as a fact. And this is the persuasive, uh, pervasive tense of the verbs in chapters 1 through 3. The imperative, as you well know, is a command. It's something you're to follow. And in the book of Ephesians, Paul uses the imperative 41 times. Guess how many imperatives are used in chapters 1 to 3? Just one. One imperative in chapters 1 through 3. In chapters 4 through 6, he uses 40 imperatives. Obviously, he's transitioning here from orthodoxy to orthopraxy. Now, while there's only one imperative used, by the way, it's interesting that the imperative that is used in the first half is 2.11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh uh, used to be called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. So he's just saying basically the imperative is remember where you came from. Remember before Christ that you came from being far off. While it's true there's only one imperative used in the first half. There are at least three places according to Harold Honer well-known commentator on the book of Ephesians, at least three places where there's been an emphasis of some kind of exhortation. Two of them come in Paul's two prayers when he talks about that they would know the power of God that would be at work in them. And the third one is used in Ephesians 2.10, right? 2.10, well-known verse that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before Him that we should, there's our word, walk them. And so while that's not in the imperative, it has the imperatival sense that God beforehand has done incredible predestining uh, work. He's prepared them before you ahead of time. And now in real time, we're to walk in those works by which he's already prepared for us. And so we're going to be looking at the imperatives of the second half. There's 40 of them, and many of them are included in this idea of to walk, to walk in unity. Chapter four, verse one through 16 to walk in holiness, chapter 4, verses 17 through 32, to walk in love, chapter 5, 1 through 6, to walk in the light, chapter 5, verses 7 through 14, to walk in wisdom, chapter 5, verses 15 through 6, 9, and then he ends by saying, stand. After he said, walk, 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 we'll get to 6, 10 through 20, and he says, stand. And you're to stand in the midst of spiritual warfare. And so, you know, uh, people just don't plead though with this idea of. So we've been talking about for someone to change and someone to 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 uh, to to in light of what they know to live in a different way. It seems like that's gone by the wayside, and few people have pleaded with the passion of Paul and for 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 others to follow Christ. The Puritans did, and certainly did one of the world's greatest evangelists ever known, Pastor George Whitfield. Listen to this excerpt from a blog on the Ligonier website about George Whitfield. George Whitfield's intense passion was kindled by his own deepening love for God and Jesus Christ, which in turn ignited his compassion for lost sinners. Biographer Joseph Belcher described Whitfield as being fired up with love from being in habitual contact with the cross. Whitfield's affection for God was stoked by reflection upon the greatness of his character. Moreover, his heart of love was fueled by his personal communion with Jesus Christ. This intimate knowledge of Christ was the consistent theme that filled his soul and increased his affections. Belcher added that Whitfield was consumed with a heart of burning, with zeal, and a zeal for his Lord and Master. You see, what he's talking about here is a little bit of the idea of Whitfield got the indicatives. He understood about the goodness and the greatness of God, and because of his meditation on God's truth, he began to be compelled to preach like Paul, to exhort others to follow just like uh, to follow the work of what Christ has done. In fact, that, that, that blog goes on to say this, Fervent love lay there at the center of Whitfield's effectiveness as an evangelist. As he preached, his love for sinners seemed to overpower them. In all of his discourses, John Gillies observes, there was a fervent and meddling charity, and an earnestness of persuasion and outpouring of redundant love. Whitfield often wept As he preached. Marcus Lone wrote. Few could withstand the sight. It woke up affections. And touched the hidden strings of the heart. As nothing else could ever do. Men could not hate one who loved. And wept for their souls. He was so compelled by the love of Christ. That he found it quite difficult. To stop pleading for his listeners souls. A deep compassion for unbelievers. Moved Whitfield in his preaching. He once declared, the love of Christ constrains me to lift up my voice like a trumpet. My heart is now full out of abundance of love, which I have for your precious and immortal souls. My mouth now speaks and I could now not only continue my discourse until midnight, but I could speak until I could speak no more. He expended himself wholeheartedly in the pursuit of the lost and they knew it. And they were drawn to his sincere pleas. And we see the ruling principle of Whitfield's heart was the love of Christ demonstrated at the cross. Oh, the height and the depth and the length and the breadth of this love, wrote Whitfield, that brought the King of glory from his throne to die for such rebels as we are. And when we had acted so unkindly against him and deserved nothing but eternal damnation. Well, this contagious affection for sinners flowed out of Whitfield's conviction that Christ loves indiscriminately all those who would come to him in faith. And that's why Whitfield would urge people and implore people and exhort people come to Christ, O oh sinner. And I wonder if you have that same impact in your life. You may not be a preacher or an evangelist, but I wonder by the way you live. Does your life beg others to come to Christ maybe in personal conversations that you would be bold enough not just to say hey I'm praying for you but to rather to say you know what I'm praying for you and I want to call you out of your sin and I want to call you to drink deeply of the goodness and the greatness of God to experience the mercy of God that he shed his blood on the cross for dying and damned sinners like you and like me and I call you out of your life and I call you to come to Christ. Do you think like that? Do you talk like that? I'm not saying that maybe that's the case for every conversation at any given moment to any person on the spot. But there certainly comes a time and place where we need to move beyond the candy. And we need to get to the meat. We need to move beyond the dressing and get to the main course. We shouldn't be ashamed to beg, to plead, to exhort anybody to come and follow such a worthy Savior. Well, this moves us to the fourth observation I want to show you this morning. Number four, from a high calling to a holy conduct. From a high calling to a holy conduct. We read again about this, that we were pushed to have our life measure up to the calling to which we've been called. And the call to a worthy walk sometimes can be a call to suffer and a call even to die for the gospel. And here Paul is writing from a prison in Rome as he says yet again that I'm a prisoner in chains. He already told us that in 3.1, but we read again that this man is a prisoner. He paid a price for this kind of preaching. And the idea is he's not saying, he could have been saying, hey, don't be too firm about the gospel or you might end up in prison like I am. Try to soft coat and self-serve the gospel to others in a very very uh, gentle way. That's not what he says. He's basically saying, hey, look, you got to live it out and you got to preach it and you got to fight and you got to strive and you've got to rest in God's grace, but you have to be resilient against all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And so that's why he's saying here, I I, I therefore a prisoner of the Lord. I'm just imploring you. I'm challenging you. He's got this calling in his life. This word call is used three times in Ephesians 118. Four one and four four. When we first looked at the word at 118, we talked about how in, in the prayer there, he was having the eyes of his heart enlightened that you may know the hope to which he has called you. And we saw that this word call is about being called out of darkness into light, about being called out of the world and into the family of God. And you need to understand this morning that theologically, there are two types of call. The first type of call in the Bible is what we call the general call or the universal call. It's the call that goes forth by Paul in the Sermon on Mars Hill in Acts seventeen thirty, The times of ignorance got overlooked, but now he commands, it's the word parakaleo, the word call, he calls all people everywhere to repent. And so there's the word used universally. There's a general call that goes to every individual in the world, repent and come to Christ. This is the universal call, but you and I both know that not everybody who's who's in the world, follows that universal call. And so inside of the universal call, there is what we call the effectual call. And this is the kind of call that not only commands something, but effectually brings it about by the sovereign power of God. We're talking here about the doctrine of election. We're talking about what we studied in chapter one, that before the foundations of the world, that God called you out. He predestined you, that you would be His. We're talking about what Paul writes in Romans 8.30, and those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. And so one thing that you need to understand is that this is a call unto salvation, but as we'll see throughout the second half of of Ephesians, it's also a call unto sanctification. If you've been called out, then your walk should match the call to which you've been called to. And so the whole point is, you're not just called to be a Christian and then, and, then, and then you don't have to worry about how you live. You're called to be a Christian and you're also called to be a faithful Christian. In fact, any other type of Christian would be an oxymoron. And so in the rest of chapter 4, chapter 5, he talks about how you're called unto a a walk of holiness. We're to walk in a manner worthy, again, of the calling to which we've been called, that word worthy. in verse 1 has the feeling of a weight. It's as if he's thinking about the the scales of justice. And on one side of the scale, he's put on all the doctrines of 1 through 3 about the fact that God selected you and Christ saved you and the Spirit fills you. In the second half of the scale, he puts on your life. And he's saying, look, you can't be saved by your works. We understand that. For by grace you've been saved through faith. But your works should match up to your calling. This incredible calling that God's placed in your life that we just look at and we're baffled by. And we can't, we can't even measure up to all that God is. He's saying your life ought to match that. And the only way that your life can match that is to be filled with the Spirit every moment of every day. That you understand that it's a calling to salvation, but also a calling to sanctification. And so let me ask you this morning, does your walk measure up to your calling? Well, the fifth observation this morning is this from predetermined doctrine to passionate duty. From predetermined doctrine to passionate duty. We've been talking a little bit about this predestination of God from eternity past, and I know it makes some of us feel uncomfortable, but we spent a good bit of time on that earlier. in the idea is like, look. God is sovereign over everything, especially your salvation, but just because God's sovereign over everything doesn't mean you don't have a duty to follow God, and in fact, if you understand the fact that he's called you, it will make you passionate orthopathy in your orthopraxy. And so the idea here is that we've got to understand that if we really know and understand the fact that we've been called out of darkness, then we're going to have this duty to live in a way that's incredible. And that's why in chapter 4, and chapter 5, and chapter 6, not only is there that call to holiness and that call to unity and that call to walk in love, it gets really practical in chapter 5, talking about what that looks like is to not be drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but rather to be filled with the spirit, so that you can have a marriage that looks like Christ in the church five twenty two to thirty three so that you can be a godly parent and a faithful child six one through four, so that you can submit to your boss at work six five through nine, so that you can stand in spiritual warfare six, ten through twenty, and so the idea is that it 's not just some kind of predetermined uh, doctrine that that, that, that that ephesians is about it's about a predetermined doctrine which is lived out by a passionate duty out of a gratitude out of a heart to live and follow god in every respect and this leads us to just a couple of take-home application points if we can here at the end are you ready number one are you ready to move from orthodoxy to orthopraxy are you ready? Because that's where we're going. That's where Paul's going. That's where this epistle is going. And if you're that kind of student who loves doctrine, but you don't like a whole lot of devotional, interpersonal family issues, then this book is for, this book is to help you grow. If that's where you are, then great. You're going to get to grow more and more. And don't forget, we can only get there by looking at the orthodoxy. Number two, are you ready to move from the call of the wild to the call of worthiness? We understand that we all feel prone to wonder. Before we were saved, we were living in accordance with the flesh. But now that you've been regenerated, you have this worthy call that God's placed on your life. What are you doing with it? Does your life match up? Does it measure up to this incredible calling to which he's called you? And then lastly, are you ready to move from the futility of your mind to the might of the armor of God? Can't wait to get to Ephesians 6 where we'll study for a while the armor of God. Are you ready to move from trying to do it on your own? to doing it in God's strength? Are you ready from just trying to be someone who's carrying the rote uh, of, of responsibility to be someone who rests under the yoke of Christ but at the same time fighting every step of the way with the armor which God provides you with? Does your conduct match your calling? We're in the beginning of an incredible journey of what it means to have a worthy walk. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to look at just one verse this morning, which really summarizes for us the principles of this whole book of Ephesians. I pray, God, that you would do a great work in our church. I pray that you would use this book and even these present series that we're in, in chapter four, to help us grow and to help us love and to help us obey and to help us do it all out of this this right affection. God, I pray that you would do exceedingly, abundantly more than all we can ask or think. God, we pray that you would do it for your own glory forever and ever. God, I pray that you would begin in each one of us individually, and then may it just lap over to us loving each other corporately to such a degree that if there's anybody that we have a conflict with, that we would be motivated to put it into action to pursue reconciliation to such a degree that we would be willing to confront those in sin in love, and with patience, and out of gratitude, and a willing heart to forgive. God, help us to grow as a church. Help us to grow as husbands and wives. Help us to grow as parents. Help us to grow as young people, as we desire to all together walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've called us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.